You are listening to the Green Majority Podcast. I hope you enjoy this special holiday edition version of the show. We have a little bit of retrospective stuff, but mostly just some really good news content and a great interview. Hope you enjoy it. You can become a member and help support the show so that we can do even more of this great work by going to Patreon, which is Patreon, uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. Enjoy the program. here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster, and I will be guiding us through uh, mostly the interview today. We have a wonderful uh, interview with uh, Emma Gilchrist, who's the executive director of DSmog Canada. She'll be joining us in just a few minutes, uh, closer to the middle of the program. But first, we're going to listen to uh, M.A. Ma and Stefan Hostetter, who are going to walk us through some of this week's most important news. So without uh, further delay, please take it away, Stefan. Thank you. Uh, so what we're doing here with the show it, today is we're doing a bit of a review show, given that it's the 30th, you know, we're right near the end of the year. We're going to do a bit of the major arcing themes of, uh, of 2016. Uh, but first, the Arctic's melting. Uh, and so that's a thing we felt like we should cover. You know, it just seemed like something that was mildly important. Um, now, that's obviously a bit of an overstatement. Uh, the Arctic currently actually is quite cold, as you can imagine. Uh, but for the past two months, it's been experiencing these incredibly different uh, or on, well, just incredibly higher temperatures than an average. Uh, in November, it was almost 20 degrees above. It hit almost 30 uh, in, in late December. And, you know, it's still going back and forth. So it went back to being quite cold again uh, now. Uh, but it's, it's this ongoing it's, – it's, 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 it's this one of the things that whenever scientists start being like, hey, guys, guys, something weird happening here. At one point in one of these articles that we were reviewing, uh, an art, a scientist says it's exciting but also terrifying. And I think whenever you, you, you excite a, temperature, a, a, a weather person, I think that's when we should be really concerned. Um, but, of course, the story itself uh, needs a bit of context. Uh, because it's kind of hard to talk about this sort of stuff without understanding some of the terms that go into it. And so the, the two major terms you need to understand to, to at least – for not only this story actually, but for a lot of stories within the environmental section uh, are tipping points and feedback loops. And so tipping points is, is, is a pretty simple concept. It's, you know, it's the same thing as the – if you understand the, the, the phrase, the straw that, that broke the camel's back, uh, that's a tipping point. Uh, the idea basically is it's the point at which a series of smaller changes become significant enough to create a larger, more important change. Uh, you know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's like you're putting weight on a bridge piece by piece by piece by piece. And at some point, the weight gets too, it gets too much and it collapses. And the th reason why this is important is because these tipping points exist uh, throughout the throughout the world um, in, in, in almost every different environmental context. Uh, you know, th th there's th there are tipping points for how much you know how much of a certain toxin can be in a can be in a can be in a water source before it becomes actively dangerous. Uh, there can be a tipping point about you know, how warm a place can get before something else happens. And so these tipping points are really important. And we hear that term, that's what it means. Uh, and the second point, the second term is this term of feedback loops. And it should be noted that there's two types of feedback loops. There's positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. 
and in positive feedback loops is a um, are more often what we talk about uh, because they are the they're the dangerous ones to some extent at least in regards to climate change uh, because positive feel- feedback loops uh, the exact definition is that the is the enhancement or amplification of an effect by its own influence on the process that gives rise to it uh, so for an example of of, of this is uh, of a small feedback loop is you know in this example we're talking about right now warm arctic temperatures uh, leads to less sea ice you know less 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 of it melts uh, more of it melts less of it actually refreezes um, and this decrease of sea ice means that the and this is I think this is one of the most interesting things that I find like mildly interesting about uh, about about the way that the greenhouse gases work which is that just white surfaces actually cool the earth in a in a, in a, in a serious way because what happens is when there's less sea ice in the uh, they the sun less more of the sun rays hits dark water rather than white ice and as as basic science tells us like rays reflect off white and get absorbed by darker colors and so the the white sea ice actually does a better job reflecting heat than the water itself around us so as uh, as the arctic warms there's less sea ice the less sea ice means that less heat is reflected back into space and therefore you know then we get even warmer arctic temperatures which then feeds back into less sea ice and you understand how this sort of rolls and of course there are hundreds of different influences into this into this into the into each one of these things um and so and so it's important to know that like while this is happening that's not guaranteed that every single year this will happen because next year there might be a different loop or a, a different type of weather that influences that um and yeah and sorry, just really quick. I said I wasn't might not jump into this section, but there's there's I, I don't even want to correct it, and I don't want to sidetrack you, but I just want to I want to really underline something that you sort of said but didn't sort of separate out for some. It's, it's incredibly important, and it's something that I repeat constantly on this show, which is that when we're talking about carbon dioxide limits, like targets, like two degrees, one point five degrees. Okay, we're two degrees is probably safe. Uh, it's probably better if we go for one point five. Um, I think that most of the public thinks that that's like, okay, well, if we get two, we get this much warning. If we get 1.5, we get this much warning. And that's the really critical part. And that's the, that's the thing that makes me so frustrated at, at Justin and, and the environment minister and all those folks, because I know that they know that they know this part, but I think that they don't think that the public knows this part. And so they feel like they're just, oh, well, just never mind, because nobody knows that. So and we can't explain it to them. There's a very good chance that two degrees will lead to five degrees, and if, if, if we hit two, it will become five, which will become ten, and there's nothing we can do about it. So when people are telling you that, like, when people are saying, oh, two degrees might be dangerous, that's not because, like, oh, well, we might be able to live with, you know, a little bit of warming, but a little bit more warming would be slightly too uncomfortable. No, it's because at some point we lose all control of it, and it just starts running away, and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that's the, that's, I think the number one thing that even people that say they understand climate change or say they believe in climate change don't actually get is the people that sort of agree with climate change is real, but yet somehow want to, like, defend Justin Trudeau's actions and think that, you know, uh, we're all sort of super extremists. That's the part they don't get. There's a part where we stop having agency over this, and that's what we're terrified of. And I just really wanted to underline that. Yeah, well, I, and I think a larger piece of that actually is, is even just the fact that there's so much we don't understand about. You know, when each time a new thing happens, scientists try to understand what it, that means, and yet we don't. 
Uh, and so uh, later on, we'll get to a, a, a brief conversation about how Arctic warming leads to changing of the jet streams, which then changes other weather. Um, because, the, because that's the thing that we, that we don't actually have very good models for because it hasn't happened, right? We don't, we, it's very difficult to understand what is going to happen because of all these different kinds of feedback loops. And to, to go back to the difference between positive and negative feedback loops, so positive feedback loops basically increases the same thing. Yeah, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. Uh, negative feedback loops is sort of the opposite. Uh, so an example of that would be surface temperature warms, more evaporation in the oceans. The evaporated water uh, forms clouds that reflect more sun rays back into space, thereby cooling temperatures. Uh, and so what's difficult to understand is while simultaneously that could be happening, uh, initially enough, there's identical, actually, uh, positive feedback loop for more evaporation in oceans. Uh, so it's kind of a it's kind of a funny one where like even within one action, it has both a positive and negative feedback loop. And all of this is important to note that it's just because that's what makes this all so complicated. Um, but the, the most – before we get into the actual sort of brief part of the story, the most important uh, concern that, that, that we sort of ha- – talking here, what in sort of you, Darren, were, were exaggerating or explaining is what happens when you combine a tipping point with a, posit- with, with a feedback loop. Because at that point, that's when you get this ball rolling down the hill that we can no longer actually control. Uh, and so the one that we always mention um, is that with warmer Arctic temperatures, once you get to a certain level, people are guessing approximately two degrees warming, which is why this was happening. Uh, it means unlocking the methane that's trapped underneath the permafrost of the, ocean, uh, of the Arctic. Uh, and as soon as that, me- and that methane, as we've said many times before, is an incredibly powerful greenhouse gas uh, it's about, I think it's 20 times more powerful than carbon uh, at trapping heat in the atmosphere. And so at that point, it's a simultaneously – this will cause a mass release of methane, which then massively further warms everything. And that's like, that's like the, that's the biggest version of – one of the bigger versions of a feedback loop, which is also a tipping point. Because once that methane is released, you can't get it back. It's not like we can just grab methane out of the air and shove it underground um, in a way that, that would in any way sort of mitigate this. And so this, these, are the, these are the things to note when you're reading some of these different kind of terms. So with that, uh, I mentioned actually previously the, the, the how sea ice can do stuff. And sea ice right now, MA, is actually, is actually quite low. Yes, and I think this is one of the sort of remarkable things to note in this article which from The Guardian, which we'll post in the show notes, is that sea ice has declined more than 30% in the last 25 years. And I think this speaks to the point that this year isn't just an anomaly. We have to look at, at the trend over the last few decades, and the trend is certainly alarming. This week, it has been at the lowest extent ever recorded for late November. And I just want to add as an aside, one of the one of the sources of this data is from the US government's National Snow and Ice Data Center, the NSIDC. I don't know if anyone has actually or the average person has actually heard of this data center. But my aside is that with Trump and his new cabinet coming into power, um, you know, data centers like this one are at risk. And we do rely quite heavily on a lot of institutions from the US to actually track what is happening in the Arctic, which is very important, obviously, to monitoring the situation. So I think looking at that kind of decline of 30% in the last 25 years certainly should be raising alarm bells. Yeah, and and then and then to to sort of expand on that, what, what partially what what makes that so important is that it feeds into all of these other feedback loops that we don't, that we only just beginning to understand. So, for example, the fact that we are at a near record low sea ice uh, this this summer uh, ended up leading to a warmer than usual autumn. 
which then which then in turn reduced the temperature difference between the Arctic and sort of the mid latitudes, which, as I mentioned earlier, has a perceived impact on actually how a jet st- the jet stream that goes through that space actually works. Uh, and the jet stream ended up actually ended up bringing more heat and moisture forced into the Arctic, which then makes it warmer, and then, of course, decreases sea ice, and then here we're going again. Yeah, and one of the, the comments in the article is that it's making the jet stream wavy. So yeah. if you can actually visualize that, you know, the, the, the jet stream in a way is intruding uh, hotter temperatures into areas of the Arctic, which shouldn't be touched by those temperatures because it's being, um, in a way, displaced from its usual curve. So yeah. you're, you're seeing these waves going up, shooting heat into the Arctic, which is, of course, one of our, our cooling engines of our, our main cooling engine of the globe. So this is very alarming, too. Yeah. And, and I think it can be often ignored because because it's, it's not seen to the near extent that it, that it is. But these are sort of these are like like when you talk about sort of, you know, canaries in the coal mine, uh, Arctic sea ice is one of those things which has a remarkable impact on the rest of the world and the rest of the, the ecosystem. Uh, so basically – it's 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 likely like what else about this is the last the last two sentences is the most sciencey ver- most <laughs> scientist kind of response to something that's like this, which is basically that um, that, that which is a good sort of walking back some of the the scariness, but also very clearly making it point that it's that this matters. Um, and it's a, it's a quote from Ed Bock- Blockley's lead scientist of the UK Met UK Met Office of Polar Climate Group. Um, and said basically that these temperatures are anomalies are not unexpected, but it's certainly extraordinary. We're seeing a continued decline in ice, and it's likely to be a hiccup, but puts us in a bad starting position for next year. And I think that's the sentence that, that gets me. It's like, it will probably go back to at least closer to normal, but, all, but, like, but be aware. Because at one point, these these bad starting positions will lead to a bad finishing position, right? Like at some point you're going to, it's this sort of, it's probably hiccup thing. We'll, we'll, we'll lose that part and it will just be, no, this is now normal. This is what the world is going to be like. And that's the piece that I'm like, that's, that's the piece where I'm a little way more wary and what I, you know, draw attention to in the story. Uh, but with that, we can move on to our year in review. Uh, we got about five minutes before the first break, and then we'll go to the D-Smog interview, and then we'll come back for a more global year in review. So, Emma, you and I are going to chat briefly about the about sort of the year in review for the for for the Trudeau government. Yes, and I think one of the key points to highlight when we're sort of reviewing how this new government has done is that they got elected on a platform which said environment and economy can go hand in hand. These things are not oppositional. And and we are going to we're going to show you that this is possible. So I think when we're assessing how well this government has done, we want to measure them against their own their own platform. But I but something to really note is how they've interpreted that and how this has come out in in policy decisions, both in terms of developing a can, uh, pan Canada framework on climate change, as well as the series of decisions on various pipelines um, that have recently come out. So we want to really look at how do we assess how, how is this government netting out? And one one piece that I just want to start with, and we may pick this up um, post-interview, is that there's an opinion piece that's been written um, by Jeff Dembicki on the, the tie, and it's called How Trudeau is Screwing Over the Generation That Got Him Elected. Now, that's a bit of an inflammatory uh, title, but I, I chose this article to talk about because it picks up on something that you had mentioned in a previous show, Stefan, which is really looking at 
um, the Trudeau government's relationship with young people, particularly young people that care about the environment and are very active in um, climate change campaigns and actions. And so I think what this speaks to is this increasingly and unfortunately confrontational relationship that is developing. And, you know, the, the author is writing this as a person who's just turned 30. And, and so here are some of his key points. Basically, which we all know that if you're, say, in that generation of 30s or youngers, younger, you're really going to have to bear the brunt of the actions that are taken today. You're going to live in an era where, you know, in the climate system, you are actually feeling the direct impacts of decisions that we make today, um, perhaps more so than, than other people, other older people. And so he's making the political argument that really the younger demographic played a huge role in getting this current government elected. So, for example, you know, youth turnout surged and, you know, it was up 18 percent and nearly um, on the last election and nearly half of those young people voted for Trudeau. So what he's saying is that these young people are becoming increasingly disillusioned um, with the decisions that are forthcoming from the government. And basically that in this demographic, it Polling suggests that environment and climate are very high priorities and that decisions that seem to contradict um, commitments that were made during the election process are really going to come back to bite this government with this younger demographic. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think what's what, what I think is interesting about the uh, about how he got elected and 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 who he's managed to sort of placate and not placate is that he seems to be he got he, he seems to he ran on a couple of very obvious issues right he ran on electoral reform uh environmental issues and and basically not being harper <laughs> if i had to describe how he ran that those are the things he ran on um and with and and, and then also a more a bigger respect for first, for for first nations and indigenous culture um and what's interesting about that is that he ran on these certain things. He got a massive turnout from from young people and and Aboriginals. Actually, like he got a, he did actually quite well with the Aboriginal vote. And after this, you know, his first full year in power, I feel like if anything, he's very well successfully managed to see to be a reasonable leader for maybe everybody but those two groups of people. You know, the only like to some extent, I feel like the places he's getting the most heat from uh, are. Uh, young, young, young people, and young environmentalists, and young activists, and and Aboriginal Indigenous communities. You know, just recently, he had, there's a whole thing over how he said that, uh, despite the fact that earlier he said that First Nations groups did have a veto, he's now saying they don't over energy product uh, projects. And I think that this is what's interesting is that it, it is some ascent a, a a turning your back on on really what you what you who you were pitching yourself to. You know, you pitch yourself to these sort of groups. You ha- you're beholden to them, and you know, you made yourself the 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 youth minister. You know, like to some extent, like he he put himself in a position where he was going to bear the brunt of this relationship, and and he failed to manage to I think convince young people that he's that he's really paying attention, um, and. I think that's if this if this uh, a thing to watch the next three years. It's like I think he can still win without young people in Aboriginal. I think he can I think he can alienate those two groups and still win with more center more centrist people. Um, and because he won, you know, got ten thousand votes from everywhere. I think that's not necessarily going to hurt him as much. Um, but I think as far as a legacy goes, if you run on 
caring about young people and aboriginals, you better hope that those are the two groups that still have your back after your first year. And I think more and more he's losing that. And I just want to highlight something that I think is maybe the most critical point, which you've raised previously, Stefan, um, is that these young people, instead of being able to invest their time in building communities and building our country, are out there protesting um, in our nation's capital, for example. And it, is that the best time of their use and energy? How is this going to impact society over the longer term if they feel that they just have to continually sit in and protest as opposed to doing other kinds of work? They could be working collaboratively, collaboratively with the government if the government was open to working with them in a way that was meaningful. And I just want to highlight one sort of more concrete point um, that's raised in the article, which is that uh, the author points out that polling from Insight West and the Dogwood Initiative – um, which I should say is a, a key stakeholder in opposition to some of these moves, um, suggested that 69% of millennials believe the approval of Kinder Morgan is inconsistent with Trudeau's promises to fight climate change and protect BC's coast. So I think that that is just one example of the decisions that that has been taken where younger people who are very informed, very aware of this issue are being shown that the government isn't willing to walk the walk and they're losing faith. And this is why I think we are seeing all the kinds of actions by young people that we're seeing. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're going to come uh, go to our first music break. We'll come back uh, and talk to uh, Emma Gilchrist, who is the executive director for Desmog Canada, another very good Canadian uh, news uh, outlet. And we're going to talk to her about a variety of issues, uh, including I intend very much to ask her about the concept of fake news and whether or not she, who is fake news? Where is it coming from? And does the mainstream media account as fake news. You know what my opinion is. We're going to find out what Emma thinks right after this break. But we're going to th- uh, first we're going to listen to a couple minutes out of Metric, which is Give Me Sympathy. Oh, and that's unfortunately all the t- part of the time of that song we have for that part of the song. But I do love that song. But we have to keep moving here. This is a live radio program. We don't have time for any, any of that relaxing. Maybe you can finish the song later. You'll find links to that music. All the uh, news issues that we cover, all the articles that uh, my uh, correspondents here uh, were mentioning in the first section coming up later, as well as links to where to find more about our current guests that we're about to inter- talk to right now, all on the show page, agreementjority.ca. Uh, but without further delay, I will now introduce uh, Emma Gilchrist, uh, who is joining us to talk uh, about, well, a lot of things, I think, but I'm hoping a little bit about journalism and a little bit about what the heck has been going on this year. Welcome to the Green Majority, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, we've been, uh, we cover, you know, a variety of news items uh, every week and, and, and try and pull from as, uh, as many different sources as possible. And DSmog, of course, uh, as a, uh, in our opinion, a very reputable Canadian uh, publication uh, that covers environmental issues, frequently makes it uh, into our usual roundup of stories. Um, and, uh, it, but it is uh, rarely our pleasure, pleasure to actually speak to somebody from there. So thank you very much for taking some time to speak to us today. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about just to sort of do maybe an off the top of your head uh, sort of year in review thing about a couple of things that really stood out for you this year. But before we get to that, I have sort of more of a pressing issue, which is <laughs> I was teasing a little bit before, and I, I'm sure you've been paying at least some attention, as most of us have, to the uh, American election that just happened. Uh, we'll we'll stay away from you know Trump himself for now. I think that's a bit outside the parameters of what we have time for today. 
but one of the issues that really came up um, that I've been very interested in sort of speaking to people about, uh, because I think it's it's hit a very interesting nail on the head, but not in the way that was sort of originally intended, which is this sudden popularity of at least the term fake news. Um, and a lot of the independent media outlets that I've been that I watch and that I sort of consult for for my own purposes and for the show as well uh, have sort of made the very interesting comment that it'd be like, well, depending on what you mean by fake news, most of the mainstream media would fall into that category as well. So <laughs> uh, I, I want to begin maybe just asking you about, you know, as uh, in running running an organization that that provides sort of an alternative media source, frequently covers stories that are not main covered by the mainstream media. How do you see your role in the Canadian media landscape fitting in with sort of those more established? voices how do you how do you see yourself fitting into that panorama yeah it's it's a great question this question of what is fake news and what is real news i think there are some pretty clear examples of the types of news that truly are fake um that are just completely bogus full of conspiracy theories and that kind of thing i mean at decent canada we see our role as providing an independent investigative voice that's focused on the environment so essentially we're the environment beat reporters that used to exist once upon a time at Canadian newspapers, but these days with layoffs after layoffs at Canadian media outlets, we simply don't have that capacity in the traditional media. So, you know, up until recently, people would tend to call outlets like ourselves alternative media, but we shy away from that moniker because I don't think there's really anything too alternative about us. You know, just because you run a website on the internet in 2016 doesn't make you alternative. Um, we're simply a specialist news source that we, you know, we really understand the issues that we cover. I've been covering energy and environment for 10 years now, and most of our reporters have been covering it for even longer. So we specialize in that area, and we provide really in-depth coverage on an issue that honestly isn't covered all that well in traditional media these days. Well, and you mentioned sort of part of the reason for that in your answer, which is that most of the people who had deep expertise in the areas that they covered, which was what I was used to when I was growing up uh, over my lifespan, that that has that 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 dichotomy that or not that economy, that that transition that you were sort of talking about sort of has happened during many of our listeners lifetimes, which is that when they were younger, that was still a thing. And people that wrote technology sections were experts or had degrees and or people that wrote the sort of the science section were themselves, you know, trained as journalists and to some degree as scientists. And that simply isn't the case anymore. Um, and and I don't know that I don't know that the public is sort of aware of that. And then a lot of cases, as you were just saying, that most of these experts, you know, either found other employment or moved to what are now being called by the or I would more accurately call the corporate media uh, and and what they would call alternative media, independent media, um, at, that that's where a lot of those experts have gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. A lot of Canadians don't realize how this shift has happened in traditional media that, you know, even just. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we had people who covered certain beats who really knew that beat. These days, even in a major daily newsroom, very few even people even have beats. They're general assignment reporters who are basically picking a press release out of the bag for any given day, and they don't necessarily have a deep knowledge of that topic. And that's a real loss to the conversation, for sure. If you're not covering that day in and day out and learning what vested interests are at play, and, you know, just having some historical knowledge of of that topic, then you, you can't provide really intelligent coverage of it. And I'd say most of the coverage that we see dominating in Canada on energy environment is not really intelligent coverage. It's not very nuanced. It's very black and white. It leads Canadians to have the impression that our energy debate is far more polarized than it actually is. 
And I think that does us all a real disservice because in reality, the vast majority of Canadians want the same things. They think that Canada does need to shift its energy use to cleaner, lower carbon sources of energy and away from fossil fuels. And yet by reading the news, you would have this impression that there's this kind of 50-50 battle between you know, between Canadians who think, no, we should absolutely do nothing and yeah, we should do everything tomorrow. And that's simply not the reality. So how is this how is this change in landscape to affect what Desmog blog does? Have you over the last few years and especially, I mean, over this year where there's been such a focus on sort of fake news and that's what we're talking about. Have you seen a you know increase in readership and increase in subscribers, donors, any of that stuff? Has it impacted your work? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the space for what we do is just getting bigger and bigger as there's less and less of it in the traditional media and people are looking for more independent voices. And, you know, it's weird. It's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, there's a lot of concern and distrust of fake news, um, but we're not really experiencing that. I think, you know, we're quite lucky, I guess, in that we've built a bit of a reputation uh, for being accurate. And in the last year, you know, we saw our readership go up 50%. We saw our donations go up. We're definitely experiencing more support. And I think the nonprofit journalism model in general is, is gaining support in Canada. It's something that has played a really important role in American democracy for quite a while. And yet there aren't that many nonprofit journalism outlets in Canada. And I think there's growing support for that, given the failing traditional media and, you know, just uh, increasing knowledge that corporate-owned media outlets maybe don't provide the most honest perspective. When it, and I think what you're you know you're getting at there with honest is that you know when we're talking about just so that non, nobody who's listening to this is confused that neither of us is proposing some sort of uh, you know smoke filled room with got you know men smoking cigars you know plotting you know writing the news headlines but when it's it's none of that you know lizard people alien conspiracy stuff this is just about a corporate media who makes their money primarily by selling advertisements to the same corporations that occasionally need to be criticized and investigated and they're just really bad at that structurally it's it's a financing problem not a you know global alien conspiracy problem. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, I used to work in traditional media and I had a wonderful experience there and I thought the people there are great and I have a lot of respect for my colleagues in traditional media. I actually think a lot of it is the structural problem and also just a status quo bias. If you've been doing the same thing for a very long time, then you keep doing the same thing. And it's kind of similar to the issue we have in our energy systems right now. I mean, open any Canadian newspaper and it has a business section. It doesn't have an environment section. And almost every energy and environment story is told through the lens of business. You know, it's told through the lens of the economy. What DSMOG essentially is, is the environment section of the newspaper that doesn't actually exist anywhere, which means we're putting that energy environment perspective first. So every time we tell a story, we're saying, okay, but how does this square with the Paris Agreement? How does this square with Canada's climate commitments? And so on and so forth, you know, which is, a perspective that honestly should exist more in our traditional media, and it just doesn't because it never has. And there are also, you know, the, the question of advertising kind of playing into that as well. Yeah, and I, I think one of the other really insidious things um, for me is the like, because I, I frequently do read the business section when it's talking about item. You know, when I see something about pipelines or whatnot, I you know I have a bunch of Google alerts set up and all that stuff to to do the show, and so I frequently do read you know pipeline stories or climate related stories from the, either the business section of major Canadian newspapers or, or whatever. And one of the things I think that's that's as insidious or perhaps even more insidious than not having an environment section is that 
very tokenized straw man versions of the environmentalists arguments are used in the business sections to bolster that. So when somebody who's not well informed reads the business section, because there isn't another section to read about this pipeline issue in a mainstream, you know, uh, in a commercial corporate media setting, they think they think they know what, quote unquote, our arguments are. And can easily dismiss them, but that's because the arguments that are put there are, are nonsense. And so I almost I almost wish that in addition to an environment section that they would either be forced to actually, you know, if you're going to talk about pipelines, you're going to talk about the opposition to it. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you do it. You can't pass a law, but it, th- there's a really serious problem with people having a, a deep misunderstanding what both sides of these arguments actually is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and this is kind of getting to what happened this year. Um, you know, one of the concerning things is that now we're seeing our prime minister pick up on some of those talking points that, you know, create these caricatures of environmentalists. So one of the things that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said while he approved the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, was that we, we have to recognize that we're not going to find common ground with people who say that we need to shut down the oil sands tomorrow and stop using fossil fuels altogether within a week. So that's parroting this kind of industry talking line. I mean, it's very handy to characterize opposition to pipelines as a bunch of radical people who want to stop using fossil fuels within a week and want to shut down the oil sands. But there, I have never known of a single environmental group that has actually argued to shut down the oil sands. All environmental groups, they actually argue against expansion. They're saying they're actually saying, let's keep doing the status quo. Let's keep producing oil at the rate that we're producing it. Let's use the pipelines that we have, but let's not expand that infrastructure at a time that we know that we're up against a catastrophic climate change risk. That's you know, there you simply can't point to a credible environmental group that has campaigned for anything more radical than that. And I think by reading the daily news coverage of this issue, the vast majority of Canadians would would be confused about that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of silly metaphor just because I think it helps sort of people think about things. So it's, I mean, it's kind of like the idea of trying to talk somebody out of dr- drunk driving home and they'd be like, you're telling me I'm never allowed to drink again. I'd be like, no, I'm just asking you to give me your keys for tonight and take a cab home. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not even close. And, and the counter argument is extremely reasonable, is extremely thought out, but unfortunately it's just consistently categorized by both the corporate media, by the oil companies, and unfortunately by our government as a completely cartoonish, silly version that nobody actually thinks. And that's why I get so, that's why I get so frustrated on the show and people have frequently wrote in and be like okay you know i sort of agree with you but you know you oversold it but that's where that frustration comes from is it's really hard to understand how justin himself is not lying i find it very i find it very hard to believe that he doesn't know that what he's saying is nonsense but that's i mean i'm just personal my opinion what, what do you think about that <laughs> i think he's he's beginning to use some talking points that are pretty concerning that, that they are hard to believe uh, that there are things that he would truly believe, especially given who some of his top advisors are. They're from the environmental movement. They know that this isn't the true stance. Um, you know, sure, there are some people who comment on websites on the Internet probably who have that stance, but it's not, it's not a mainstream stance that is forwarded that we need to, you know, make this drastic switch tomorrow and shut down the oil sands and stuff like that. That said, you know, I do want to say, Environmentalists don't always help themselves, right? They, you know, they do things like bringing people who compare the oil sands to Hiroshima, and they hold banners that say things like shut down the oil sands, even though that's not a commonly advocated position, right? So they kind of fuel the fire a little bit sometimes. 
When, yeah, and, and and man, we could have a whole hour discussion about that. I'm going to leave that right there where it is. Yeah, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. I totally agree with you. I just think that if we're going to get into it, we need a lot more time. Uh, but so I want to just point out that one of the comments you were just making was actually from your most recently published article on DSmog blog. You have up that was on December 21st. It's called Trudeau's New Pipeline Talking Point, straight from the oil industry. If you want to read Emma's uh, actual article on that on that point, we'll leave that there. So with our last few minutes here, um, I just wanted to let you know. Um, again, we've only got a couple minutes, but if you just sort of off the top of your head, what really jumps to mind at you from a Canadian perspective about what DSmog was covering this year as some of the the biggest stories that DSmog broke? Yeah, so we actually just published a story just a second on five surprisingly good things that happened in Canada in 2016. So I know there's a lot of people kind of down in the doldrums right now with the election of Donald Trump and, you know, there's there's some bad global news, but there are some really good things that happened this year for sure. I mean, Alberta now has a legislated carbon price. They've legislated that there needs to be 30% renewables in the mix by 2030. Uh, in addition to that, recently the Embers Northern Gateway Pipeline was finally officially killed. You know, that's a battle that had gone on for 10 years, over 10 years, and we're soon going to have a, a legislated ban on oil tankers on the north coast of BC. So that's, you know, another big story. I think one of the ones that we, we've been covering a lot that isn't getting a lot of coverage elsewhere, that is honestly the thing that I'm most excited about for 2017, is that the federal government is currently reviewing the way it does environmental assessment processes. Now, that sounds incredibly geeky, but it actually underpins so much of the environmental conversation that we're having in our country. We are super geeky on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, good. So glad. Um, (laughs) I mean, so this process, you know, is going to look at how do we actually assess all of these different projects that are currently controversial. And a big part of the problem is that we aren't doing any strategic level assessment. So, you know, in British Columbia, for example, we have over 20 proposed liquefied natural gas export pipelines. Nobody's stepping back and saying, okay, let's look at this whole scene. Okay, A, should BC be exporting LNG? You know, B, if we do, where should we do that from? And so on and so forth. So we're left to, to grapple and communities are left to grapple with each proposal as it comes, which is a really silly way of doing things. So one of the most promising things that could come out of this environmental assessment review is more of an emphasis on what's called a strategic level environmental assessment that would stop and take a picture at the bigger, uh, take a look at the bigger picture, the cumulative effects. Well, that all sounds really awesome. We are super geeky around here, so I will be very excited to to read through that. I did actually have that uh, the article flagged as well, but I I have yet to read it, and I will I will do so shortly. I, I want to well, thank yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you again for all of your time, uh, uh, Emma, for for taking some time to talk to us, and we will uh, continue to include Smog stories in our in our news roundup for sure. Wonderful. Thanks for including us. Absolutely. So uh, if you were just tuning in or perhaps halfway through, we were just speaking to Emma Gilchrist, who's the executive director for DSmog Canada. You can find links to uh, both DSmog itself and to uh, Emma's page as well. So you can see that article that we were, some of the articles we were speaking about in her uh, rundown on that page as well on the website later at greenmajority.ca. But we are now going to go to our second music break before we come back and uh I may jump into the mix a little bit here, but we're going to do a little bit more of an international year in review with Stefan and M.A. Uh, joining us once again. But until then, we're going to listen for a few minutes to Great Big C. All right, we are back. I do also enjoy that man's voice, but... 
we'll have to leave it there. You can listen to the rest of that song. In case you don't know what it is, you can go to our website where all the songs, everything else that we play on the show, including all the news articles, all the references, links to our guest, and uh, personal bios of the show hosts. In case you want to know what kind Just of fun facts, sport Stefan likes because you don't <laughs> already know because he doesn't mention it every five seconds. All of that information is available at our website at greenmajority.ca. Without further silliness, however, MA is going to lead us back off because uh, there's a direct follow-up to the interview we just heard. So please take it away, MA. Yes, I just wanted to comment on the article that Emmett had mentioned um, that, that is from uh, Carolinette from DSmog, which is also posted on the tie, which is open science critical for effective environmental assessment. So as she, she mentioned, um, nationally, we are going through a review of our environmental assessment process. And one of the other key points that the article makes is that when the federal government or any level of government, I should say, um, makes a decision that is based on data that's provided, that that data should be transparent and available for the public. And so that leads me into my next point, which we've talked about before. We have seen positively, and I think it's important to acknowledge the positive as well, some unmuzzling of the scientists. And we talked about this this last week. This is a really big change. Um, we haven't arrived, but I think the government, federal government does deserve some credit for this. My, my point that I wanted to raise is what happens when the science actually contradicts the government's platform. And that leads me into one uh, last article on this topic that I want to point out, um, which I think is, you know, really, really important. Um, which is really looking at how do all these decisions that this government has taken, including those that are encapsulated in the pan-Canadian framework on climate change, um, how do they tally um, in terms of carbon emissions? And so the the last article I just want to highlight on this subject is another opinion piece by uh, Barry Saxifrage. I hope I've said that right, Barry. Apologies if I haven't. Which is Trudeau's carbon tsunami by the numbers. And this is available on the National Observer, uh, one of our favorite sites for information. Um, and Barry has a nifty little graph here, which looks at Trudeau's CO2 scorecard. And it looks at the implications of the CO2 emissions that have that will come from these pipelines decisions versus the quite positive decisions around putting a carbon tax in um, and phasing out coal by 2030. So have a look at that if you're interested in how this all balances out. I'm sure you can guess that it doesn't balance out in favor of uh, <laughs> reducing carbon emissions. When, when does that ever uh, balance out in favor of reducing our emissions? I feel like eventually we'll have one of those stories and we'll all cheer and great, and great fun. Um, so we only have 15 minutes uh, to try to get through these three stories uh, or these three. So the, the big themes of, 20, of 2016 that I have decided upon because I am apparently the decider of themes of 2016, at least for right now. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to try to introduce them, give a bit of uh, get a bit of background to the both of you. You guys can comment quickly. And maybe if we get through each one of these in five minute chunks, we can actually do this effectively. I'm going to try really hard to keep my comments to 10 words or less per story. All right. Amazing. Uh, so the first, uh, the biggest news of 2016, um, at least I think from an environmental initiative, uh, like, you know what? I don't know if these three technically are rated one, two, three. I think they're just three big stories. I don't want to give an explanation for why this is the most important. Um, although it is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, the Which is this indigenous pipeline fights and the, and the justice-based climate movement uh, really coming, it really 
coming to the forefront in a, in a massive way, uh, you know, especially with with the Standing Rock protests. Uh, but but you see it a lot of other places, and, and it's and it become increasingly important in Canada as well um, with this Indigenous resistance. Um, but at the same time, with this with this, what's important to note, I think, about these uh, about these pipeline fights and this justice based climate movement is that more often uh, – not more, I don't want to say more often than not, but it is relatively common that indigenous peoples do not see themselves, do not identify as environmentalists. And this is, should not be an environmentalist's claim of victory. Uh, the, word, the wording they use is land and water defenders. And I think more often than not, in, in environmental justice movements, you know, say the people fighting for Flint, Michigan's water, uh, look a lot more like land and water defenders than they do what we understand as traditional environmentalists. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is this understanding or hopefully this understanding is a of hope from my front from traditional environmentalism uh, that their role is often is going to be of an ally rather than uh, look at me we're the ones doing this and I think if you if you want to point to some of the major failings of the environmental community of the last 20 30 years it's that they kept trying to center themselves in these conversations or find a way to sort of co-op these conversations to to, to their you know to, to, to lift up their own cause and I think more often than not, than not or perhaps we're just being people are, are being better at really articulating um, or, or appreciating that the role, the frontline role that indigenous communities and environmental justice uh, warriors um, take on. Uh, but I think that's a huge theme that we're seeing in 2016 of, of that – you know, environmental. Like, if that's what the biggest environmental movement uh, con- stories are of this year, so m- no, almost none of them are actually uh, are actually you know led by the quote unquote big environmentalists. They're they're these small organizations um, or you know indigenous people across North America coming to Standing Rock uh, to make a fight and protect their land and water. And I think that that shift towards more justice based approach is is a trend that we'll especially see continue as we get into my second main story. But comments from the two of you. Uh, my super fast thing was just to, to just to make a reference to the sort of uh, second and third wave feminism uh, comparisons, which was the first one was just a bunch of white women talking about only their rights. And then I, I'm not a feminist history you know, historian, so I'll stop there with my history lesson. <laughs> uh, but basically, the idea was it was a small group of people who were sort of looking out for themselves and then it didn't go very far. And then essentially, uh, you know, once it became more inclu- genuinely inclusive rather than, hey, you guys support us. It's OK. What do we all want? And let's work together to achieve it. Uh, I don't think too many people would be angry at me for some it that way uh, that that's very much the sort of evolution that we're looking at now and that that's sort of a natural evolution that we've just seen over, over history of social movements so I'm hoping that that lesson is now learned that this has to be done as a you know a uh, a league of allies and not uh, sort of a couple standard bearers and everyone else who supports what I say you know get in line behind me um, because if that lesson has not been learned then we will then we actually have no hope uh, but I think if we did, can be successful I think there can be some hope because I think we'll see some allegiances that none of our perceived opponents will have seen coming and that could be very powerful Emmy one thing I would just add is that we have seen um, First Nations turning to the court system. I don't believe personally that they should have to, but they are very effectively using our court system as a tool to fight off projects where there has been a total absence of engagement or respect for uh, land rights and self-determination. And I would just encourage everybody to get behind um, those fights. They are resource intensive and they deserve our support. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, they're not 
sexy, and sometimes you just yeah. have to send the money. But that that that, that, does, that should not dissuade you from being line, involved. Really, yeah. um, like for example, nearby us, the Chippewas of the Thames, and we've also covered other uh, fights that are happening out west on the show. Yeah, and I mean by I mean by sexy is that sometimes people just really want to quote unquote get their hands dirty and go and you know yell outside someone's building, and there's a time and a place for that. But sometimes what's actually necessary is just funding experts doing what they do well, and that's that I think is what we need a lot more of right now. Yeah, um, and so and I, I think that's the what's interesting is I th- I think that also. It grows. Anything that grows the movement is a good thing, especially especially as I was as I sort of teased at the end of my of my first bit um, about how this sort of on the ground fighting is going to be increasingly more important because of our second biggest story of the year, uh, which, as you might have guessed, is Trump slash Brexit, um, which. Really, I think that the way I've decided to sort of talk about this is in two different pieces of it, um, and and I think there's there's thousands of think pieces out there. So I'm just going to try to center in a couple ways that's important for for what we're doing. Um, which is the first is that Trump slash Brexit, I think, uh, highlight a xenophobia as a response to stagnant wages and increasing economic disparity. Uh, you know, I think people are noticing the fact that they aren't getting any that, that you know the rich are getting richer and that the middle class is not getting much better. And that's been the case for the last 30, 40 years. So despite the fact that average incomes may be increasing, the average is drawn up by the top 1% or 0.1% as it may be. Um, and, and that's not actually – there's a lot of people in the sort of murky middle that are not necessarily doing so well. Um, interestingly, even as, even as people at the very, very, very bottom are getting a little richer. So it's like it's not so much that it's – you can see all these things that say like way less people are living in massive economic uh, – you know, in, in like extreme poverty as they call it. But that doesn't – but they, that means they're now living in just a lot of poverty. Uh, and I think there's this extension uh, upwards where despite – there are ways to frame it as if things are going fantastically. And I think a lot of people aren't feeling that. And, and it's, a lot of people are turning to xenophobia as a response, as a way to fight that. Uh, the second – Obviously, which actually works quite well, actually, with the with the conversation we just had, which is this sort of post fact world, and I've been trying to like understand what we mean by post fact world, as we because we sort of talk about it all the time, and the best I can explain it in my brain right now, at least, is that the world where sort of this sort of global elite are losing control of the debates. Um, and, and or at least the global the, the sort of global consciousness is losing control of the debates. So the debates of things like what makes good trade, um, or how we understand economic prosperity. Right? How do we understand a the United States? is objectively has been increasing his economy has been growing since i think 2009 when they got a version it's been growing pretty steadily under obama the entire time and yet there's this discourse that actually no it's still bad um in the same way that uh how we like how we deal with climate change has become uh, we used to be like a okay we at least accept the fact that it exists and now we're arguing how to deal with it and i think trump and brexit are a rejection of that debate as well and then I think – and this extended to even just what is just happening at all you know, in the world that we've got this thing where that we have a massive di- di- disparity about like is Russia, is Russia good? Is Russia hacking the U.S. government? Um, how much influence is that actually having? Uh, or even things like you know, to the, 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 the massive amount of disinformation surrounding the Syrian war. There's just so many pieces of – he says right now where – we can't even accept what is actually happening, so we can't have a debate because we're losing control of the parameters of the debate. And I think that's what people are sort of afraid of with this Trump and Brexit. Mm. I see it. I see it in a way. I don't disagree with anything you just said. I just want to add on to it that um, I sort of see it as the last stand of the uh, you know older 
uh, maybe not baby boomer, maybe like a little bit younger than that, but sort of the, the last stand of the older generation that is not sort of that didn't grow up with all this technology that didn't grow up being able to plugged in and, and in, in isn't automatically their first, you know, first instinct most of the time when they don't know something is to pull out their phone and Google it rather than just come making up whatever opinion, you know, seems right to them. Um, and so we have a real clash of civilizations here, but it's in, you know, instead of being, uh, you know, an explorer breaking into the new world and taking over America, now it's just, it's a generational thing. And so I see with, you know, with Brexit and with the whole Trump thing and whatever, it's a whole bunch of really badly informed people who are looking out for their own interests. And if they were better informed, it wouldn't be such a problem because they would realize that their interests are our interests and that we're actually on the same page, but they're incredibly misinformed and they're not inclined to look it up. And they think that you're arrogant and stupid for disagreeing with them. And so I, I really don't think this is a matter of just, oh, some people are just stupid. I really think this is the majority of old people are just the world's changing really, really fast. And they haven't kept up. And I think it upsets them. And I think it frustrates them. And they're responding defensively by basically shutting down all debate. And the problem is they're the ones that show up and vote. They're the ones that are already in all these positions of power. And so they're controlling the conversation. Uh, but I do see this as a last stand. Now, it's a last stand that might win. Mm -hmm. they, might, they might succeed in ruining the planet. But it is a last stand. Uh, because the people who are coming up after them who are taking these people's jobs uh, are radically different. And uh, this, this may be the darkness before the storm. And I, and, and I think that if we can just make it through the darkness, uh, I think we'll be just fine. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what's being said. And I just want to point out that with this broad-based, large-scale disillusionment that we're seeing across societies, particularly societies where there is a lot of affluence, but it's not necessarily being shared around and the shares are getting smaller, it, it creates opportunity and it creates vulnerability. So there's an opportunity for people like Trump to swoop in and capture a fairly significant portion of the popular vote, um, even though he embodies everything that has led to this disillusionment. And I just want to read the headline of one article that's in The Guardian, just because it sums it up so nicely. So it's sort of talking about his newly appointed uh, cabinet of horrors, as I call it. And the, the headline is climate deniers, conspiracists, and one and one percenters, Trump's cabinet of characters. So I mean, if we look at the space that's being created by this so-called rejection of, of the prevailing elite, their institutions, who's actually stepping into that space? It's the one percenters. And so I think that speaks to Darren's point that things may get a lot worse before they get better. But I do also think that those of us who, who consider ourselves to be the, on the other end of this spectrum need to also look at this as an opportunity and start filling that space with more positive uh, alternatives and structures. And speaking of positive uh, alternatives and structures, excellent segue, Emma, uh, to the third uh, theme. And I think this isn't exactly a theme. Well, you know what? I, I wouldn't call it. I'm going to go with, I'm going to say it's a theme uh, because it's, it, it, it sort of, it, it sort of spreads across the world, but I think it more speaks to sort of the, maybe it's the momentum that already exists. Uh, or the momentum that we that 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 uh, that even Trump and Brexit uh, can't necessarily stop to some extent. Uh, so these are the glimmers of hope for a new world, um, and and you know, there are things like that. Twenty sixteen showed 
showed Canada decide that it was going to have a national price on carbon, uh, or at least Trudeau implement policies to lead towards a national price on carbon. We don't have it now, but at least it's it's, it's theoretically in the works. Uh, 2016 also showed China coming up with a more firm plan to, to launch its carbon market in 2017. So we're seeing prices on carbon open up more and more places, and and as that as the tip of the amount of uh, the eco- world economy that's under a carbon price increases, uh, you get to a point where that 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 has its own positive tipping point to extent where you know if if you know sixty five seventy percent of the world's carbon is under is under some sort of carbon price that influences the rest of the world to get on the same game so they can keep trading in, in a reasonable way. Uh, the second uh, glimmer of hope is that renewables are still booming. Uh, Twenty fifteen was was the first year that um, that renewables actually oh, the, more than fifty percent of installed power. Was renewable rather than rather than other other types, um, and 2016 saw a similarly. We won't know until the the numbers come out, but similarly increasing installations everywhere, in, including China. Um, and then the third glimmer of hope uh, is that uh, we actually had another global agreement on reducing greenhouse gases this year. You know, 2015 had Paris, and, and 2016 had Rwanda, uh, which was an agreement on fluorocarbons, which we covered on the show. Uh, it's not the same. It's not, you know, it's not the same scale, uh, but they, they were still. This is going to become a much bigger issue. This is actually us taking proactive steps, and I think that's important to note as well. All right, we will have to leave it there. We're going to be back if you're listening to the podcast with a brief bonus show. Not too long today, but uh, we will have a little bit more if you're listening on the podcast. You can check out the podcast on iTunes, which you can find through greenmajority.ca. But if you're listening on the radio, thank you so much for listening to this week's program. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you again in the new year. Take care. That's it for the regular show. We have basically a wish list coming up for you in the bonus show. We talk a little bit about some of our hopes for 2017. We did not organize it, but it kind of sounds like we did. I think we're all, all the hosts today are very much on the same page, but we hope you enjoy it uh, nonetheless. And uh, have a good holiday. We'll see you all real soon. If you'd like to support the show in 2017, uh, it would be a great time to do so. We have a bunch of very good improvements planned in the works that will be coming in. And the more support we get, the sooner we can roll them out. So you can become a member at greenmajority.ca or go to Patreon, which is P-A-T- R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority. And welcome to the bonus show, the final bonus show of 2016, which is why it gets that weird intro. Uh, <laughs> Do the movie voice. I don't know. <laughs> why don't you tell me what you wanted to buy? <laughs> yeah. um, that was Kramer's movie phone voice, not the movie voice itself, but still something. Uh, in studio, uh, of course, still with M.A. Ma and Darren Kester. Uh And we're going to talk, we're going to talk like hopes and dreams of 2017. But before we do, we have a slight giveaway for people who actually made it this far in the show. Uh, so if you're the kind of person who both downloads our show and then listens to our entire show before next Friday, A, you're our favorite. Uh, and B, uh, because you're our favorites, we are going to get we're giving away five free subscriptions, three month subscriptions uh, to National Observer. Uh, they've 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 inco- been so kind to provide this for us, and we are providing it out to our listeners. So sign up on the hit the contact us page. Say you're interested in getting one of those free subscriptions. We'll send you back a short couple pieces of information we need to know about you, uh, and then uh, and then we'll hook you up with a free subscription for three months, which is fun. Yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah, I, I have a subscription. I, I do too. It was given to us because we're you know <laughs> using it for journalism purposes. I actually so paid. I actually paid for mine. Oh, I, I was trying mine. to. I was. I figured. I, I figured I had to put money where my mouth is at some point. Um, and so, but for, the, for this bonus show, what we're doing is just hopes and dreams for 2017. 
which we came up with seconds ago. So I'm going to warn you that we all just thought of these hopes and dreams. So have either of you thought of a hope and dream to start off with, or should I just jump in? Well, I can, I can start with one. I just want to clarify. Do you mean like things that are realistically likely to happen, or are we just like spitting for the moon here? Ooh, interesting. I would say, I would say something that's like like it, it it has to be able to happen within this year right plausible. so i think something plausible exactly plausible and i also think like within a year's timeline right like you okay. uh, you can't ask for a you know uh, a death star because it would just take longer than a year to build a death star uh so these are i think it has to relatively reasonable but you know why not go for it all right. So um, my first thing was that I, I mean, we were just sort of joking on the way down from the other studio. We changed studios between the show and we have a little conversation about the show in between that. And one of the things I was thinking about in there was uh, the just the idea that it's I think it's very likely that um, Trump is an extremely obvious con man. <laughs> and um, and I think it's by obvious. I mean, obviously, he tricked enough people. And I think enough people were kind of like, well, I don't care if he's crooked on those things as long as I get my one thing. Um and they're going to find out that it's the people who he screws over are the people that trusted him the most. Uh, and I mean, we, there's a million reasons why we could go through that. But anyway, so we don't need to, we don't need to do dissection on Trump. The, the reason I want to mention that is I think there's a very real chance um, that Trump will get impeached during his first year in office. I think that's a very real chance of that happening. Um, I'm not saying it's certain. Uh, I think it's possible. Uh, now that unto itself isn't a problem because of course the, the, the problem was that part of the, one of many reasons why Trump got elected was because people are finally aware of just how insanely corrupt the the establishment is. I would say more so in the U S than in Canada, but just generally speaking, establishment has been taking care of itself for quite some time. And generally the establishment means people with power and people with power generally means people with money and people with money generally means people who work for corporations. So largely this is a plutocracy system that we've been moving towards for quite some time. Uh, and unfortunately, that played a strong role in Trump getting elected because people misunderstood him as the you know harbinger of that, not the sort of they, they mistook him as sort of the the saint and savior of that rather than the harbinger of it getting much, 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 much worse. Um, and I, but I think people are finally awake that this was the problem. I think he, that was where a lot of his support came about these problems. You know, while as much as I think racism and everything else played a role, I really don't think that was the deciding factor. I think it was this just this just left and right you know have everybody across the board it has finally realized that the system is designed to screw them over i think they're you know misunderstood why uh, but we now have a plurality of people on both sides who are aware of the fact that the system is designed to screw them over and uh, and is is anything but just uh and so i think that in addition to just getting rid of trump which will simply bring in uh if he gets impeached i, I don't know how the american system works but i think they just like make the vice president president yeah, yeah. so that doesn't be, solve be anything president pence so which is potentially worse uh, i could make an argument for it being worse but i realize that's debatable uh but so what we really need though and i think because people recognize that is is people finally going like okay well when my guy is in office I get a bunch of stuff and I love it. But when the, when that power that we gave my guy gets given to some other guy uh, or maybe one day some other woman, um, now all of a sudden I'm terrified because I don't want someone I don't like having all that power. And I think we may see a scale back of just power in general if there can be enough of a pushback on this. And I think that that could be the chip in the wall that sort of brings down this final last stand, as I was talking about in the show, this final last stand of the sort of the old ignorant people who think they're right and look down sneeringly at people who actually know what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think uh, to, to jump off that, I'm, I'm going to go with – I'll have a similar theme on my, on my hope and dream for 2017, um, which is – 
which isn't so much like I, I think Trump will probably make it through the first uh, first year. I think they're going to have to. I think I, I think basically he's going to have to do something that's that's super egregious. And I then, think you're underestimating Trump, but anyway. well, that's fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I just I, I think like I, I literally think that they'll have to give him a year before they they they, they crucify him in the second. Um, uh, but the for me, I think the bigger the the bigger hope I have is that all of that sort of. Under misplaced or anger and all of that sort of unsettled feeling that we sort of see uh, galvanizes in a rebirth of the left in, in the United States. Um, because right now it is in desperate, desperate need of a leader and of a strong, cohesive voice and a plan. And it seems like they're basically just floundering. You know, there's 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 infighting about who the next Democratic chair will be. Uh, there's 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 they're super weak on the state level. You know, they basically just had their North Carolina governor stripped of all his powers and can't do anything about it. Like, there's just all of this. There, the the left has really has really eaten itself uh, a little bit, and I think what you need to see is a is a is a rebirth of from a vo- from a, a, a sol- at least a relatively solidified voice <laughs> um, uh, that takes all these groups of really activated people and brings them under the same tent uh, to to lead a real positive change that we actually need. Like, you know, I, like for a long time, I've been saying that we need a new New Deal, um, and. And I, I, I had hoped that that Obama might be able to give, deliver that, and 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 that's proved that hope proved somewhat faulty. But in part because I think that that hope came from a place where he, you had a tremendous uh, and charismatic leader, but the framework was still so weak. You know, the framework of the Democratic Party was still so weak that Obama was sort of was 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 held back by you know the fact that he relied on West Virginia Democrats for for climate change, and and West Virginia Democrats are as bound by coal as literally anybody else. Uh, so I think that we what my my hope and dream is that we will see a rebirth uh, of 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 a, of a of a left in the United States that actually manages to 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 be big tent and to capture these hopes and dreams and minds of all of these actually really, really activated people and, and, and rebuild it from the ground up in a way that, that, that could actually do real change, uh, to, to steal, uh, Obama's previous land. Or that, was that a Trudeau's? It was Trudeau's. Uh, sorry. Um, but, that's it for me. That's my plan. I, I think that twenty. I think twenty seventeen will be a because if there's ever if there's ever a chance to be big tent, it's when you have a very obvious opposing force. Um, and I think Canada proved that when with, with Harper in power is that it allowed a wide range of strange bedfellows to come together uh, to to fight Harper. And I think Trump could provide a very similar galvanizing force for the American left. But I think they have to understand how institutional their change has to be they, you know they have to b- win the low fights to then win the higher fights because if you can't win the governor seats you can't change you can't change seating practices if you can't change seating practices you'll never win the house if you'll never win the house you'll never have true power uh and so that's my hope and dream ma what's yours well I, w- I just want to say for our listeners that we did not confer about this uh, before doing this segment of the show. This was very spontaneous. So mine is actually very similar to both of yours. I My dream is that 
this coming year is going to be an epic year for movement building. And for all the reasons that you've just said, Stefan, I think when you have um, such extreme forces at play uh, that we've been describing, it does stir things up. It creates opportunity. And I really hope, particularly in the U.S., but you know, in the globe more broadly, that it's a year of awakening and that it's not just about people that have been sort of in the activism sphere coming together, but there's like a popular awakening. So people really understand, particularly in the U.S. and in Canada, too, um, we should talk about our own home turf here, that there are institutions that are holding them back, that is holding society back, and that there needs to be a groundswell around changing those institutions, replacing those institutions and systems that are rigged against the average person and are not there to ensure social progress. So I would hope that with the more extreme conditions that we see many, many more people joining positive movements that have been previously outside of those movements. Well, I think, uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't add one slightly different one as well, which was uh, one of the things I've been watching. You know, we, we've unfortunately here been talking about Trump, but it's it's going to be dominant. Get used to it, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm as sad as you are, but it's, that's that's the way it's going to be for a while uh, to talk about Trump. But one of the things that, that I've been watching about Trump as well has been, uh, I mean, a lot of people who are really following the election from an independent media point of view uh, beforehand were aware of the of just how of how much the Democratic Party intentionally basically decided Hillary Clinton was going to be their candidate there's a whole bunch and this is all there's evidence for all of it about all sorts of internal stuff about trying to silence him and the the dnc cooperating with the hillary camp to like put out you know misleading stories about bernie to try and get him out of there so it's nothing makes people like me and because there's a lot of people who are aware of this uh more angry than right now uh bernie sanders is going around basically doing town halls with trump voters and they're they've been televising them you can watch them on youtube and it's hair pullingly maddening because he will change them into people that were like, yeah, that essentially would have voted for him. Either some of them will tell him outright, yeah, well, I would have voted for you over Trump uh, after having actually heard him. But the problem is these voices are being shut out. Uh, so in addition to the fact that I think that carries on uh, to what you were saying, which was uh, my two sort of other points that are related to that. One of them is, you know, there is a point to having these conversations because a lot of people just really they, – they've – as much as we all swim in a bubble and, and people, you know, especially the people who live, uh, who, uh, you know, volunteer on this show, uh, but also I would imagine probably much of our listeners are in very much sort of social bubbles in the sense that they don't really actually have meaningful interactions with people, uh, quote unquote, on the other side of the aisle very often. Uh, and when they do a lot of time, like I was saying in our early view, uh, interview earlier, uh, a lot of this is just that they've been told these completely cartoonish and ridiculous arguments that are supposedly our arguments for our point of view. And they think those are our actual points. So no wonder they think we're all idiots um, because those are stupid. They're straw men. They're, in, they're designed to be weak. Uh, and that's why they're being told. So if we really have this dialogue, you know, I think there's a real possibility of, of really getting that pluralism. I think we really need to have those conversations. Um, and the follow up to that, the second point is. One of the best ways to do that is not to confront people on the street or on the subway. It's to have shows like ours. And so one of my other hopes if for 2017 is that we can generate enough support to actually have some paid staff members to continue to produce this show in a meaningful and professional way. Uh, I thought we had a really good show today. I think, uh, you know, Stefan was off work and and I don't think he would be insulted if I told him that I could tell that he had more time for the show today. <laughs> uh, it was obvious. I think it's obvious to our listeners. Like, this is what we're capable of and not even this. I mean, we could do way better than this. But, I mean, just to, to underline the extent to which this show is pulled together 
together in you know a bunch of very busy people's free time, which is not to say much. Um, and the the power of what I think what's possible if we actually had the actual infrastructure to make an a, you know an actual professional show that had it, the amount of time that was required to put into it every week. Boy, could we really do something! And I think now is the time for that. Uh, not just because I think. You know, I'd like to spend more time in the show, even though I would not just because I think it would be great to get paid for this, which I also think it would be great. The point is, is that I think now is the most effective time to have this sort of alternative media and all sorts of independent media. Uh, like Smog and, and National Observer have been getting lots of support, uh, I think we make an excellent fit into that Canadian version of that. So this is a not at all sort of sly or uh, winking, a very, very serious request to uh, consider becoming a Green Majority member in the new year. You can help uh, that change come. Uh, that was my little advertisement that I was embedded by accident because hmm. uh, I just thought of it in the moment. Uh, do we have any final comments? Uh, do you want to add anything? Is there any other wishes we missed? I don't have a. I, I wish that our listeners have a solid 2017. Uh, at least, at least you know, better than 2016. <laughs> Which for some people say, like I, I think as a, I don't know if this is meaningless, and we probably cut all this part. But a lot of 2016 has gotten like a fascinating amount of, sla- uh, of, of of like it's 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 trendy to hate 2016. And I'm sure there are people out there who had like pretty damn great 2016s who are like being quiet because they just it's like I got married and had a new job, that was fun. <laughs> um, where because like and then everyone else who then then but the the world went to a weird place in 2016, and I hope we find our footing a little bit in 2017. And I hope all of you have a wonderful time. Well, I, I know that I, I will do my best to enjoy myself. That's all I can promise. Last we'll words, Emma? There's no point in being depressed about the outcome of the U.S. election. <laughs> I just want to say that I encountered a lot of people that were very down and with good reason. It's good that we all have our eyes open, uh, but at the same time, the best thing we can do is channel whatever anxiety, depression, concern, and fear into counterbalancing what has just happened in the U.S. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a wonderful quote that I uh, I, won't, I won't play the clip. It's yes, it's yet again from a video game, but it summarized my thing. I'll just tell you what it says, which is a, a line from a game called Portal 2 where this guy's going crazy about, you know, when le- that whole thing about when life gives you lemons. He's like, I don't want your damn lemons. Tell life to take the damn lemons back. I'm going to go to the science department and have my scientists build combustible lemons that'll burn your house down. Anyway, it's really silly and over the top. But the point is, is that you can get sad or you can get angry and there and you can also get constructive angry or not constructive angry. I think those are the only three rational responses here. <laughs> We're asking you to join us in that constructive angry where you get just pissed off enough that you do something, uh, but not so pissed off that you make a fool out of yourself and make us all look bad. <laughs> I think maybe we can leave it there. Uh, we, you know, enjoy your enjoy your week off. If you're listening to us live or right after we posted it, please enjoy your new year. Uh, if you're listening to us after, please I hope you did enjoy your new year. Uh, we're going to be bringing you some really great things this year, so I hope you stay tuned and you're as excited as we are to bring them to you. But we will leave it there for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and take care. 